evening again, church. It is the 2nd of August. I can't quite believe that. It's the 2nd of August, which means that now five months of this year have been more than a little bit weird. And we are in this strange moment in history where, uh, for us in Scotland, lockdown is, is easing a little, and we're taking some steps, and restrictions are changing, and rules are changing, and yet lockdown's not over. This isn't over, but I don't know about you, but I'm finding that already I'm looking back on lockdown with rose-tinted glasses. Now, not like recent days lockdown, but like Tiger King lockdown, like the lockdown at the very beginning when we were watching Tiger King and baking banana bread and scoffing at people who were baking banana bread, but secretly also baking banana bread. I look back on it with rose-tinted glasses because, yes, it was hard. It was really difficult in, in lots of real ways, and I, I didn't love it all in all, although there's treasure in it, and Jesus is still on the throne, and God is doing good things in our time. But I look back on it, and I know that in lockdown, all of the restrictions and everything that was going on, I, I had to develop some new hobbies. Because before lockdown, my hobbies were going out for brunch, singing with other people, and coming to church with other people. So I suddenly had to be quite creative about what I was going to do for fun. Now, I've got a question for the public, okay? So if you're in the room, you can show me on your hands or you can shout out. If you're at home, put, the, put your answer into the chat. We had quite a, quite a variety of responses earlier, so clearly no agreement. But my question for you is, how many times do I need to do something before I'm allowed to call it my hobby? Like, if I was to go home tonight and bake some scones, can I say that baking scones is my hobby? Do I need to bake scones twice for it to be a hobby? Do I need to bake scones twice a week for a year for it to be a hobby? What do you think? Oh, Caitlin's like seven times? That's, that's like a holy number. She's going, yeah, Daniela, five. Sandy says seven as well, okay. Right, oh, Naomi's like two, great, I like that. Just start something and then love it and call it a hobby. Well, as restrictions began to ease a little in lockdown, um, a few friends and I, when we were allowed to be outside, we, uh, we picked badminton to be our lockdown hobby. And there has been some chat this week and some accusations made by certain people who will remain unnamed who have said that we are not allowed to call it our hobby because we've not done it enough. But I can assure you that we are quite serious about it. We own multiple badminton nets. We have our own theme song. We've lost various shuttlecocks to the building site beside my garden. And we can't name a famous badminton player because there are none, but we might become one. Badminton is my new favorite lockdown hobby, something I cannot call a hobby by any stretch of the imagination is wild swimming. Anyone a fan of wild swimming? Yeah, you are, because we went wild swimming. So a few weeks ago, um, I went wild swimming once with Naomi Stewart. If you can call wild swimming um, jumping up and down in a lock, screaming a lot, then we, we went wild swimming, and it was great. But I can't call it a hobby yet, because we've only done it once. But we had been gearing ourselves up to this for quite some time, uh, looking forward to it, and it was all hinging on the safe arrival of some bargain wetsuits off eBay, because we live in Scotland, uh, not Barbados. So we were waiting on these wetsuits, and mine arrived, and it was dropped off at the church, and I'd been working here that day, it was a Thursday, it was five past five, I was ready to go home, but I was so excited to try on my wetsuit, because being locked down, it was the most exciting thing that had happened in quite some time. So I didn't want to wait until I got home, so I just took my wetsuit into the girls' bathroom here in the building, and I uh, decided I would just give it a quick try on right there and then. Now, I looked at the wetsuit with my eyes, and I thought, my gosh, it really does look small. Now, not just like a wee bit small, but like Disney princess body small, where I, I kind of looked at the waist, and I was like, I swear that waist is like the width of my head. I don't know how this is going to work. <laughs> but 
experts, wetsuit experts, general outdoors experts, had told me that wetsuits are meant to look small and that they will feel tight. So I was like, this is, this is fine, this is surprisingly small looking, but it must be fine. So I proceeded to try and try it on in the church building. So I, I got my feet into the feet holes, which was my first success, and then I tried to pull it up, and it, it didn't pull up, so I thought, it must be a sort of roll-up kind of job, like little by little by little, like this is the first test of wild swimming, like whether you're really wild enough. So I, I started to roll it up my legs and, and little tiny bit by tiny bit and pure stubborn determination, I get the knee pads over my knees and then I'm plunged into darkness because if you ever use those toilets, you know that they're motion-censored lights in there, so you've got to come out of the cubicle. So then I'm like, okay, I'm not in the locked area anymore, so this feels a little bit more nerve-wracking, but it's fine. I'm basically alone in here. So I came out into the little unlocked area of the bathroom, and I'd, I got it up to my knees, but that was it. And I, I heaved, and I pulled, and, and I, I got it up to some semblance of being on my body. And I looked in the mirror, and I concluded that it would have taken a crane at that point to pull it up over my body to get my arms into it and the zip shut. So I sort of laughed to myself and I thought, well, that was a nice try, but this is clearly not a successful purchase. It is too small for my body and it's going to have to come off. So then I, I started to try to take the wetsuit off, except I find this considerably more difficult even than putting it on because to get it off, I had to get my feet the whole way back through the tiny leg holes, but all the while I was stuck in, my feet were stuck in the wetsuit. So then the, the wetsuit was just all entirely around my feet and like little bit by bit, I was like, this is even taking more of my strength to try and get this off my body. And you know that feeling when, I don't know if guys know this feeling, but I don't want to be exclusive, so maybe you know this feeling, but you go into a shop and you try a ring on and then you're like, you try to get it off and you realize that you're either going to have to like buy the shop or cut off your finger because the ring's not leaving. Or you try on a friend's ring. I think that's actually worse if you try on a friend's ring and then you're like, well, I now own your ring or I'm losing a hand. That was how it felt except that I was wearing the ring and I was in an unlocked part of a bathroom dancing around trying to keep the lights on while the only other people in the building were two people from an unnamed other Glasgow church recording a sermon upstairs who at any point might have needed to go to the toilet. So I'm stuck in the wetsuit and... You can tell if you're in the room that I did eventually get it off me because you can see the bottom half of my body. If you're at home, it's fine. I'm fine. I got it off. But by the time I got the wetsuit off, I was, I kid you not, potentially the most physically exhausted that I have been in a long time because it was so difficult. Like it required so much effort to get back to comfort in that moment. And I don't know how you feel at this point in 2020, but for me, as I have done a little bit of self-assessment, there's something about that horrific wetsuit experience that has captured for me a little of how I'm doing right now, where in some ways I feel squeezed, I feel stuck, I feel tired, I feel uh, like I am struggling because I'm uncomfortable and I don't know how to go forward or I don't know where things are gonna go and it feels vulnerable, I feel vulnerable in that feel a little bit like I'm stuck in something and I don't know quite how to get back to comfort again. Because I don't want to feel vulnerable, I want to feel comfortable. I want to move towards feeling more comfortable. There's always a, a tension in my heart between where I am and where I perceive true comfort to be. Maybe more than ever right now in this year that we are in. But as I seek God in my own life and as I seek God in the life of our church, and I wonder about this time that we're in where the immediate trauma of a pandemic has 
past or is passing, but the reality of it is very much still real, and everything that is brought to the surface is still very much there, and, and all of the challenges and issues and, and, and problems of our life that we had before COVID-19 are still around, but maybe just exacerbated by what's going on this year. While all of that still plays out before us, I wonder if maybe we, we have a choice when we're not at that happy ever after that maybe part of our heart wants to reach or to be at already. I think we have a choice whether we embrace holy vulnerability to go where God leads us or exhaust ourselves trying to build dens of comfort that are actually impossible to build so that then we can wait this out and, and somehow emerge unscathed when it's all done. I believe that where I would like to hoard and hibernate my way through this time or any challenging time in my life, God would rather I obediently step into those vulnerable spaces that I might see his kingdom come in our time, in my life, in the ways that he wants it to. As I follow Jesus right now, do I, do I go wild swimming without a wetsuit that fits or do I get into my bed, put my electric blanket on and pull my duvet up over my face? What do you mean by holy vulnerability? Uh, let's just define this for a second. So instinctively, when I hear the word vulnerable or vulnerability, I think about um, embarrassing myself. I think about humiliation. I think about bad memories. I think about uh, the, the nightmares that I would have where I'm standing backstage and I don't have a costume on and I don't know the lines, but I'm about to go on, where inevitable humiliation awaits me. That's kind of what comes to mind when I think about vulnerability. But I'm not talking about the chance that you'll be humiliated, and I'm not talking about vulnerability as being something that means we need to be protected more than others, as we've kind of come to know it with everything that's going on with the pandemic. Brenny Brown writes in her book, Daring Greatly, about how the word vulnerable is derived from a Latin word which, mean, which means to wound. And she presents the idea of vulnerability as being a space where we are open to being wounded. She defines it as uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. And talking about holy vulnerability tonight, I want to talk about daring to step into uncertainty, risk, and exposure for the sake of God's kingdom coming. Reading through the Bible, I, I see so many stories and so many circumstances where there's a particular pattern of, of crisis or need for God to act, and then God's people or God's person steps into a vulnerable space, a risky space, an uncertain space. God acts, his people are saved, and in that order, Tonight, I want to plant us just in a wee story from Luke chapter 8. It's in uh, the other synoptic gospels as well, but we're just going to read from Luke's account tonight. So it's in Luke chapter 8, starting at verse 40, if you want to read along. By this point in the story, Jesus is on the earth. He's made quite a name for himself, and he's coming back from the other side of the lake, and he's greeted by this massive crowd here waiting for him. So it says this. Now, when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman was there who'd been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. I've got four 
what-if questions for us to consider today in light of this passage. And the first one is, what if our vulnerability is a key to breakthrough? We don't know this woman's name. We're not told her name. What we are told is that she had suffered for 12 years and no one could heal her, which means she sought out healing. If I try to think back in my life to, to where I was 12 years ago and the amount of time that has passed, I want to let 12 years sink in. And the very reason that she needed to be close to Jesus was the very reason that by Levitical law, she should have absolutely stayed away because she would have been considered perpetually unclean. She would have been deemed untouchable. Anything she touched would be called unclean, and anyone who touched anything she touched would be called unclean. And it's not an accident that twice in this tiny story we're told by the writer that the crowds almost crushed Jesus. There are so many people about. And yet she gets close to him. This woman's first act of vulnerability is daring and deliberate and would have required her to, to push and touch her way through people who she would have been accustomed to avoiding and definitely not touching in order to get close enough for that risky reach of Jesus' robe. And she's healed in that moment instantly, she says. She's instantly healed. Not by a, a superstitious act of touching in and of itself, but we're told by her faith at the very moment when it is displayed in that vulnerable step that she takes to touch him. She steps into uncertainty, risk, and exposure, and it says immediately her bleeding stopped. Where on one hand we have her, her story of 12 years, then suddenly we have immediately her bleeding stopped. She was healed instantly. After 12 years, she gets her breakthrough in her personal crisis. There's another example in, in Esther's story in the Old Testament. I love this story. The Jewish people have a very real shared crisis. They are sentenced to die. Mordecai instructs Esther to go and plead before the king for mercy for the Jews because she is a Jew and she is queen at the time. And like most of us probably would, when she is uh, faced with the possibility that she has a very real role to play in her own crisis, she explains the risk. She sends a message back saying, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. Mordecai is not a king's official. He is not part of the royal circles. And there's almost a sense here of her saying, yeah, that's, that's a good idea perhaps, but, but actually here's the risk. I understand the risk, you might not understand the risk, but, but actually, I will die. That is the one law, unless this happens. The risk is great for her. There is a way that it is. There is a one law, and then there is an unless. There is a chance it could go another way. And she has to choose to walk into that arena where either thing could happen. And we're not told the odds for her. We don't know how often he would extend the gold scepter, whether it uh, was a certain amount of times a year, or whether it depended on how he felt about you or what sort of day he had had. We don't know the odds. But so often in these moments in our own lives, we're, we're not told the odds, but we know that there is a, a way that it will be unless God intervenes. And we walk in on the unless. When Esther steps into the arena, the entire story turns on that moment where the unlikely event, and then unlikely event after unlikely event, we see the unnamed God in that book revealed as being intricately involved in the story of his people. Second what if is, what if we need to be exposed for God to be revealed? This is a wee picture of me and my mum. She is called Mita, and she's been making masks 
which we call meta masks. Now, my mom informed me, I gave a statistic this morning, I said that she'd made over 300 masks and given them away. She told me this afternoon she's made 383 and given them away, and she is continuing to make. So that is now, that is now her role in society, she makes masks. But she's, she's good at it, it's been nice. I actually tragically lost that tartan one very soon after wearing it, so that's a precious photo now. But she makes Mita masks. Um, we call them Mita masks. Brian and Kelly have a Mita mask each, and they just call them Mitas for short, so they'll say, you know, like, oh, do you have the meters? Do you have two meters? Kelly will be like, grab the meters, and they'll put them in the bag, whatever. Um, which made me think that perhaps for her business, the slogan could be two meters apart together at heart. Guys, yes. Wow is the right response. Yes, it's perfect. Just you wait, just you wait. I'm going to be gone forever, and you'll be like, well, what's she doing? And I'll be like, I'm starting the mask business. I'm gone. Um, last week in pre-service prayer, I, in the listening time, I felt like God was, was saying something about us taking off masks. Now, not taking off our actual masks. I am not that person. We want to wear our masks when we need to wear our masks. But I felt like God was saying something about uh, the things that the masks that we put on to just hide ourselves a little, especially when it comes to matters of our faith, who we know God to be, what our life is like with him. I don't enjoy feeling exposed. Feeling seen feels vulnerable, both in the case of like accidental exposure and in the case of uh, the whole truth of who I am and who I know God to be being exposed. That feels vulnerable, especially in our generation, in our time, among certain friends. It feels vulnerable. But we see in, in this encounter, in this story, that Jesus is not okay with this woman remaining hidden after she has been healed by him. And he asks, who touched me? Now, Jesus is God and man, but that, that question reminds me of the moment where, where God's walking in the garden much closer to the beginning, and Adam and Eve are hiding because they've sinned, and he says, where are you? You kind of think, well, God, like, don't you know where they are? Expose them. Jesus, similarly in this moment, I wonder, like, could, surely he could have identified her, he could have exposed her, but he doesn't. He asks, who touched me? The book of Mark says, uh, says it this way, Jesus kept looking around to see who'd done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. Luke says, in the presence of all the people, she told why she'd touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Mark says, the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came to Jesus. And Luke writes, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, she came trembling and fell at his feet. I like the, the picture that these two accounts build together. Feeling seen, somehow knowing that she couldn't go unnoticed. And yet, in this same story, the disciples are like, Jesus, it's really crowded. We're never going to find her. So I have to wonder, like, she could have gone unnoticed. But Jesus is looking for her. And she feels seen. And so she comes forward and lets herself be seen. She approaches him again, but this time in the presence of all the people. Not from behind for a risky touch of his back of the robe, but right in front of him at his feet, in view of the crowds. And as she is seen in this moment, where in one hand we have this quite pragmatic explanation when she touches that her bleeding stops, at this point when she comes forward, when she is at his feet, he speaks her identity over her. He says, daughter. And he says, go in peace. For this woman who for 12 years would have been ostracized from her people, would have been known as unclean, labeled and identified as unclean for Jesus, 
the rabbi Jesus, the savior of the world at that point to say, daughter, and to tell her to go in peace, healed, hugely significant. And the crowds hear her story, they hear the whole truth, why she touched him and how she was healed. And in that moment, this private encounter and this incredible miracle that, that happened almost uh, in the background or, or, or that people wouldn't even know if Jesus had not said, the power has gone out of me, then becomes this public declaration of who he is, this public sign of what our God is like. We need to take off any mask that we wear that would, that would be a mask of silence or half-truth. We need to be bold enough to tell our whole story, to let ourselves be seen. Because if we do, people will see the God that we know, the God that we worship. Third, what if? What if we need to get beyond our own comfort? There is a reason we talk about stepping out of our comfort zones. That's because they are, they are safe, they are nice. I think generally if we were left to it, we would spend our whole lives building a comfort zone and then setting into it, staying in it. We talk about stepping out of our comfort zone because, generally speaking, we'd rather be in our comfort zone, or that is more naturally where we live. And I know I want God's plans and purposes to come about in my life and in my lifetime, but there is always a tension in my heart between my desire to pursue his calling on my life and my desire for comfort. And as I look back on my own story, it's, it's uncanny just how uh, little to no times me stepping further into my calling or uh, further into something that God has for me has ever, it's, it's never resulted in more comfort. <laughs> it's never made me more comfortable. The woman who touches Jesus goes far beyond what is safe for her for the sake of something that is more important. Putting our calling or prioritizing our calling or pursuing our calling more than we pursue our own comfort will be costly for us and it will, it will lead us into vulnerable spaces. We see it play out in Esther's story. Mordecai says, plead with the king for mercy for the Jews. And she says, here's why this is risky for me. But then he says back to her, do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. He says to her, you may be in the king's house. You might be surrounded by nice stuff. You might be in those royal circles, but that's not who you are. Not ultimately. You're a Jew. This is who you are. And although acting, although not acting now might feel safer, you're not safe. And he goes on in, into the next bit. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Now on, on cushions everywhere, we have put who knows but that you were born for such a time as this. And there's nothing wrong with that. It, it's, it's good. But it just struck me this week that I couldn't find a translation of the Bible that says that you were born at such a time as this. The NIV, my, my version says, who knows but that you've come to your royal position for such a time as this. It's the same in the Holmans. In the NRSV, it says perhaps you've come to royal dignity for just such a time as this. And in the New Living Translation, it says, who knows if perhaps you were made queen for such a time as this. I can't find a translation of the Bible which uh, just mentions Esther being born for such a time as this because I think there's something more than her, her generally being born at the right time for this opportunity, but actually she's been very strategically, specifically positioned with the right amount of influence, the right amount of authority for the exact opportunity that was going to be before her. 
And with that in mind, it, it makes me wonder if we lose sight of how the specific circumstances of our life are not for our own enjoyment ultimately, but place us somewhere, position us somewhere, put us on the edge of opportunities to see God's kingdom come in our time and in our place and in our lifetime. It's clearly laid out for us in the story that God's redemption plan does not have to hinge on Esther's choice in this moment, but that it can, which is kind of incredible. And in that, I love how it mentions that she puts on her royal robes. It's like she, she puts on her influence, she puts on the sign of her incredible comfort in the king's palace, and she steps out of her comfort into her calling into that vulnerable, risky space where this could happen unless God moves. Final what if. What if we need to take a bold leap? Oh no, I don't have it with me. I had a little postcard that I want to show you, but we do have it on a screen, so it's fine. Um, do you guys find that the best thing about lockdown, one of the best things, was receiving post? I really, I really got into post for a while, but it's kind of calmed down now, but this was one of the best pieces of posts I, I received throughout lockdown. Amanda's here tonight, so that's nice. But she, uh, if you know Amanda Buckin, you'll know that she's wonderful. She sent me this postcard near the start of lockdown, and you'll see the picture, what she wrote on the back of it. She wrote, Dear Laura, I was asking God for pictures for our church leadership, and I got this for you. I feel like that's just, I would just love all my posts to start like that. The next bill, Laura, I was listening to God, and this is the amount that you owe us. No, just kidding. <laughs> She then went on the right. On the left is some red string tied to a tree hanging over a river. String, not rope. But you run, jump, grab the string, and when you do, it is a stable and sturdy rope that you swing high, and it's so fun and beautiful. Now, this picture is mine, and it's for me to pray over and consider for my own life. But um, I feel like God brought it back to my attention this week as I prepared this sermon, and I wonder if it's because there's maybe a general invitation for us to, to leap to take a bold leap towards something before it looks secure, before we feel ready, into that vulnerable space, waiting for God to move. I know that when it comes to potential God opportunities in my life or when it has done in the past, I, I really, really like to know that it's safe to jump before I jump. I wanna know that um, God is answering my prayers or has already answered them. I want to know that the outcome is fairly much guaranteed. I want to know that um, he's fulfilling promises or has already fulfilled the promise. And, and I want to know that I've waited long enough to be sure, to be really sure. But so often it doesn't work that way. And we need to jump before we feel ready, maybe before our prayers are answered. For Esther, before she steps into that space, she is, uh, her preparation is prayerful. She says to Mordecai to get the Jewish people to fast for three days. She says, my people are going to do the same thing here with me. But at the end of that, we don't, we don't read in the story that she felt an overwhelming amount of peace in her heart, and so she went in before the king. And although that can happen, it really can happen by the grace of God. But there isn't that. There isn't a clear answer. She doesn't have a, we don't hear of a dream in the night. We don't hear a vision. We don't hear of a word. We don't hear of a moment when her prayers are answered. She, she prepares that way, and then she goes. And it makes me think, too, of Nehemiah, when he is terrified to put his request before the king, and uh, the king asks, what is it you want? And Nehemiah the prophet says, uh, writes down, then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. He prays and then he speaks. We might need to jump into things before our prayers are answered. We might need to do that before we feel ready. We might need to jump without the guarantees regarding the outcome. 
in our Bible read through, I, I just reached back to Daniel again this week and reading about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego again and how uh, when the statue of King Nebuchadnezzar is, is put up, they won't worship it. And that means that they face the fiery furnace. And yet in that moment, what they say, they say the God we serve is able to deliver us, but even if he does not, and their example, uh, well, I should finish that actually in case you're not familiar with it. Even if he does not, we will not worship the statue of gold that you've put up. Their example to us is one of, of openness to outcome because their worship dictates the direction of their life and the direction of their life does not dictate their worship. They don't worship a certain outcome. They worship the God who is able to do anything. If we try to worship God and also worship the comfortable outcome, we might avoid some fiery furnaces in our life, but in that story, that's where God is. He's in the fire. And if God's in the fire, then I want to go in the fire. Holy vulnerability might look like going with our eyes fixed on a future promise. The classic example of this is Abram in, in Genesis chapter 12, where God says to him, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. Leave these things now for what I will do in your life. And when Abram gets to Canaan, at that point, there are still people there. And the promise is very much not fulfilled, but he builds an altar to God and worships him in that moment because he worships the God who's with him, the God who said, I will, and he doesn't worship the promise itself. I remember when I was learning to drive and found out maybe for the first time in my life that hesitation could be a bad thing. I used to kind of think, you know, course it's good to hesitate because it means you're being careful it means that you're you're being cautious but I remember learning to drive and being told by my driving instructor that if I hesitated too much at the roundabout I could fail my test because you have to go hesitation can be good and it can be healthy but there are also times in our life when it is not the spirit-led response for us where actually God is asking us to go into a vulnerable space without hesitating we see uh, this wee example in, in Abigail in 1 Samuel chapter 25. Now, it's, it's, a little, uh, it's, a, it's a weird little moment, but her husband, we're told, is, is cruel and stingy and, and mean. And David, as in like King David, is offended by him quite uh, drastically. And we're told that Abigail acted quickly. In a tiny little verse, in a tiny little moment, Abigail acted quickly. She had a moment. She had an opportunity and she made amends because she acted quickly. Holy vulnerability for us might look like jumping into something before our prayers are answered without guarantees of the outcome, fixed our, with our eyes fixed on a future promise without hesitation. Rather incredibly, God has chosen us to communicate and display his hope for humanity. And he's chosen us for that right now this moment, not next year when, you know, not post-vaccine, not um, when things get back to normal, not when uh, God answers this particular prayer of mine, not when things line up for our future, but right now. I want you to imagine just, just for a moment that you are, let's say you're on the middle diving board at your community uh, swimming pool of choice, perhaps one that you went to in your childhood. And you're on the edge of the diving board and behind you is, is safety and comfort or at least the pursuit of it. And in front of you is, is holy vulnerability, this space where we dare to go into risk and exposure and uncertainty for the sake of God's kingdom coming. Do you want to jump 
Do you, do you want to jump into that? I, I can't jump off anything. I can't jump off a diving board. I can't jump off a, a rock ledge. I can't uh, freely jump into anything. The idea of bungee jumping would be my worst nightmare in the entire world. I remember going to camp for the first time as a leader years ago, and uh, there's a zip line at camp, or there was, um, back when it was deemed safe. There was a zip line which was built on top of a very tall tree, and there was a little zip line tower at the top, and um, four-year-olds went on the zip line. So um, as an 18-year-old young staff member, I thought, you know what, I can probably do this. So I climbed to the top of the zip line tower and, and got to the tower, and, and the camp director was there, and he, he got my harness and all hooked up, and I was ready to go, and I was safe. And, uh, the little kids would like run off the edge of the zipline tower and like do like the Superman one and like go down head first and, and all this kind of epic stuff. And I just like sat down on my, on my bum and like shuffled little tiny bit by tiny bit by tiny bit towards the edge. And I remember sitting on the edge and just thinking, maybe this is where I live now. This is, this is maybe where I stay because that's really far down and I can't get myself off this edge. And I remember the camp director just saying behind me, can I push you? I was like, yeah, yeah, you can push me off the edge. And he did. And the outcome was the same. And I learned in that moment that every time I wanted to go on the zip line, I just had to say, Steve, you're going to have to push me off the edge. Actually, anything in my life, if I was going to jump out of a plane, it would be a case of, you know, like just attach yourself to that person and you just say, just jump at any point. Just said, can I push you? And I wonder if for some of you out there who are not me, you might, you might be the sort of person who can, who can jump, who, who's ready to jump, who is, who's geared up to, to go into those places and you, and you can do it by yourself and you can jump in and that's going to be good. Maybe for some others, you need, to, you need to just say, God, you can push me. Just to give him full permission to push you into those vulnerable spaces because I believe that the outcome will be the same that either way, God will be with you and he will help you and his kingdom will come through your life and in your life in ways that you could never have imagined if you'd stayed on the ledge. I've got a, a couple of wee challenges today. A couple of them are just for um, taking a bit of time to pray and ask God to reveal these things to you. The first one uh, being just say, God, test my heart. Am I pursuing comfort over calling? Even as we go into the next song to ask God that, am I pursuing my comfort over my calling? What is more important to me? And then to ask God, is there a space of risk, uncertainty, or exposure that you would have me move into? Maybe, it is, uh, maybe you have an opportunity in your life. Maybe you have a gifting in your life that you're not using and you should be using. Maybe you, there's a conversation you need to have. Maybe there is something you need to stop doing or something you need to start doing or um, something that you've, you've known for a long time is, is somewhere that God would like to take you, but actually you're just like, that's just a bit much. But to ask God, okay, is there a space, is there a space like this where you would like me to go? And then in response to that, and whatever God puts on your heart, to plan your next steps and to jump into it, or to say to God, you have full permission to push me, push me in. Another one I, I didn't have ready for the time that the slides were done, but just that was on my heart earlier, is this, remembering this woman in the story, she, she sits at the feet of Jesus in front of the crowds and she tells the whole truth of why she went to him and how he healed her. And I wonder if for lots of us, we need to get better at telling the whole truth, revealing the whole truth. So maybe this week, just to take a bit of time and to think, okay, what is the whole truth of my life with God? 
why I went to him and what he's done. What is, my, what is the whole truth of my life? And am I telling it? Am I sharing it? And then to share it in some way, whatever way that means for you. We're going to continue into a time of, of worship and response right now. If you're here and you want to, you can stand with me, you can kneel, you can sit, you can journal, whatever you want to do uh, as we begin to respond in a time of worship. If you're at home, this is a good time. If you want to take communion, you can. You can take the bread, which represents Jesus' body, and uh, some wine or some juice to represent his blood shed for your forgiveness. Now is a good time to do that. Our prayer team are ready online, and they would love to pray with you for any reason tonight at all. If you're here in the room, um, use church online when this is done, and, and let someone pray with you. If you're at home, go for it right now. Click live prayer and let them pray for you. There's a few words that the prayer team have shared with me today that they feel like might be particularly on God's heart for us. Um, so if something here means something to you, if this is your story or circumstance, I'd say just use that as your final Holy Spirit nudge. Click live prayer. Let them pray with you. They want, to, they want to pray for anyone today who's struggling with addiction, or maybe there's someone in your family who's struggling with addiction, and that is hard. If you have pain in your right shoulder, or any sort of issue, if you have a headache or you're struggling with headaches, if you need more joy, if you want to commit to God, if you've been praying for salvation for a family member and you want to see breakthrough in that, if you're seeking God's provision and practical support, and then the date, the 13th of July, if any of those things mean anything to you or there's, there's something off the back of the message today that you want to respond with, click live prayer, let them pray for you, they'd love to do that. If this is your church and you want to give here, you know that the information is on our website. If you're at home, you'll see a wee button at the top that just says give and all the details are there. I'm going to pray with us and for us right now and, and then we'll go into this time and, and first, I just want to pray a simple prayer for anyone who, maybe for you, your first step of vulnerability tonight is to say, Jesus, I need you. Maybe for the first time, maybe you need to turn back to him because you've been far from him or you've walked away from him. Maybe, maybe you haven't turned away from him, but actually you just need to say that again, Jesus, I need you. But I'm going to pray a, a short prayer here that if you want to give your life to Jesus tonight for the first time, if that, if that feels like the step of vulnerability you need to take, I'm going to pray and you can pray with me. And then I'll pray for all of us. Jesus, I need you. Thank you that you died on the cross for me, that I might be forgiven and have full life, eternal life with you that starts now. Forgive me. Wash me clean. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Help me to follow you all the days of my life. Fill me with the joy of my salvation. Jesus, I turn back to you. I'm sorry that I've walked away. I give my life back to you. I surrender the things I'm holding on to. Give me your joy. Give me the joy of my salvation. 